So if you would, turn back to Psalm 73. Uh, and let's, let's look at this through the lens of what we've just witnessed. I know that all of you who've been part of this church for a while have been worried about Paula. And I thank you, Paula, for your courage to share your story. I thank you, Beverly and LaVoice, for your family being here. And this is hard. And uh, I want to invite this entire congregation online here to minister to the staff and to each other and especially the worship team, because this is hard. All right, Psalm 73. I want to get into it through this lens. And you see how it begins in verse 1. And I think you'll see it on the screen, and I think you'll see it at home. But it begins in verse 1. Surely God is good to his people and to the pure in heart. And I mean, it's pretty much what you'd expect to hear in church, isn't it? It's almost a yawner. So far, there's not a lot of surprise value in this psalm. But if predictability is the essence of cliche, then surprise is the foundation of our delight, and there is surprise here for us in the midst of trouble. Our writer of this psalm, Asaph, is, he knows this Sunday School Lesson 101 better than all of us, uh, this teaching about God's goodness as well. And, and Asaph also, like the rest of us, in the midst of trouble sometimes, often, maybe even this morning, has a problem with the cliche of God's goodness. So he surprises us. Asaph struggles mightily with envy, and you're going to see it. He is wonderfully honest, as the Hebrew scriptures are so honest, about the crisis of faith that he's in, about the trouble that he witnesses, and he just doesn't get it. And you'll see that though his envy creates doubts, his questions that he addresses to God become the catalyst for his growth, because he brings them to God, and that is our task. Listen to, his, to the surprise and his honesty in verse 2. We just read, God is good to his people. And then Asaph says, and he says this several times in this psalm, but as for me, somebody say, as for me. I, you know that, right? As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Anybody feeling that today? You can tell I am. There's a problem that has nearly destroyed his faith. And Asaph's opening confession of slippage leads to my title in our summer song series, Slip Sliding Away. You know the Paul Simon song, perhaps, right? Not all of you do. You're a little young, but I grew up singing it. I, I actually performed. I, some of you know, some of you don't, but I performed in clubs throughout my uh, university and, and grad school years. And Slip Sliding Away was always the song I opened with. Uh, Alan, and uh, you know, the, the chorus, you know, slip sliding away, you know, the nearer your destination, the more you're slip sliding away. The third verse, which you may not know, says this, God only knows, God makes his plan, the information's unavailable to the mortal man. We work our jobs, collect our pay, believe we're gliding down the highway when in fact we are slip sliding away. I was going to sing that for you, but couldn't get through it. Asaph is a well-known worship leader in his day. He was the C.C. Winans or the Israel Houghton of his day in ancient Israel. And he is slipping on the thin ice, John, of how to square a God who is good with the prosperity of evil and trouble. I mean, yes, surely God is good to his people. It's the kind of line that might capture a six-year-old. But it doesn't gain deeper understanding through the years. It will be quite fragile as we grow up. 
not when you're six, but when you're 16, or perhaps 36, or 46, or in my case, 67. It, 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 it may just seem that life as you grow gets too big and too complex for this simple one-liner to, to make sense. Many a person, and we've all felt it at some point, but many a person has slipped away from faith that they grew up with, the simple faith that they grew up with, for just that reason, that life is hard. So Grace City, Asaph begins this song by reminding us, number one, and this is my first point, of what life teaches, what life shows us in verses 3 to 14. Take a look at verse 3, and he says this. This is how he's slipping. I envied, <clears throat> I envied the arrogant. <clears throat> Got my water today. Ready? <clears throat> verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So God may be good to the pure, but life seems exceedingly good to the impure through the eyes of Asaph. That's what life is showing him, what life teaches. As Asaph looks around the neighborhood, checks out the political scene, he observed that things don't quite um, line up. If anything, as one looks around, he's seeing that life teaches that the, the wicked actually prosper. The injustice that Asaph witnesses has pointed to him to life's reality. And Asaph is feeling, on the front end, envious. And it's going to involve into even harder feelings. Look at verse 4 as he begins. He says this, they have no, The wicked have no struggles. You, the lover of God, you have to claw your way to the top. The wicked just seem to glide there. They get tan and healthy, and someone else gets the cancer. They're not, they're not filled with human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. And even if they are, the good thing about money, right, is that you always have options. Asaph, not Bob, Asaph. He says they ooze wealth and well-being, and they flaunt it. And then you see in verses 6 to 9, pride, pride is their necklace and their evil imaginations have no limits. And Asaph is just beside himself. He says, I couldn't even dream up their scams and their schemes and, 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 and never mind actually pull them off. And all of this has a running commentary of rude obscenity and threats. And then in verses 8 and 9, the wicked prosper if you look around you. They claim heaven and ignore the creator while they possess the earth. And he's through with it. He's done with it. Anybody feel that ever? He's really honest here, isn't he? And we're still, if you look at verse 10, the public adore them. Oh, of course he's a liar. He makes stuff up. I don't know how she keeps pulling it off, but you got to admire her for it. This is what he sees in the world. And when it comes to God, look at verses 11 and 12. Well, it seems like to Asaph, through Asaph's eyes, it seems like God is rather feeble. God is rather unaware. He doesn't seem to be doing anything about the trouble in our lives or about the wicked. Always free in verse 12, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. You might remember an ad that appeared on the sides of buses many years ago, and it said this, there's probably no God, so quit worrying and enjoy yourself. And this is the conclusion that Asaph is coming to. Why bother to live for God? It doesn't seem to make any difference. You may not remember that a young C.S. Lewis actually uh, had originally rejected the idea of God, Jeremy, precisely because of the injustice he saw in the world. Until he realized, 
as he grew that the opposite is what should have happened in his intellect and in his heart. And he wrote this. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. Have you ever stood in that place? It, how can there be a God even with a world that looks like this? With a world that looks like this kind of trouble, this illness to a wonderful lady. That was his argument. And then he writes this. But, but how had I gotten this idea of just versus unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? How did I make this decision about what was just if I didn't have any balancing point? So far from disproving the existence of God, the presence of injustice in our world actually pointed Lewis to the reality of such a thing as justice and hence to a reality of an absolute and an absolute being and his life was changed and the rest is history if you've read C.S. Lewis. And I don't know what or who you might envy in the same way Asaph is or be disturbed about in the same way Asaph is. For some of you, for some of us, it might be very personal. Names or family, friends, neighbors, colleagues. Uh, for others, it might be sort of a general displeasure with, within, you know, the rich, the wealthy, the sports, the entertainment industries. Maybe you think of Google and Amazon and Apple and how they rake in the profits and avoid the taxes. Maybe you think of our political candidates and their vast wealth and how they can use that wealth to manipulate the attitudes and beliefs of people. And Asaph shares your frustration. It's okay to be honest about this. That's one thing we can learn here. And as his envy grows, it evolves into something even darker. There's a flip side of envy, which he actually admits to, and it's called this self-pity. Self-pity. Look at verses 13 to 14. And this is something we can fall into. We can slip slide into this. He says this, Surely in vain, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. And all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. He's saying I, I pushed myself to the limits, right, John? To, to stay close to God, to honor God. And what good has it done me? Ever felt this? This is, this is hard honesty. They do secret deals. They flash the cash, and I have to count the pennies at the end of the month. They, they do whatever they wish. They sleep around while I stay pure, and I have no one. And I know I've heard that from many of you through the years. So what's the point? And I see his point. Do you see his point? Do you see his struggle? God is good to his people? Seriously? Welcome to what the world teaches. Welcome to the real world, world he's saying, Prema. This is what life teaches. But he doesn't stop there, Grace City, and neither should we. And this is where our prayers go when trouble arises. He talks about what God reveals in the face of what life teaches. What does God reveal? Take a look starting in verse 15. You see, Asaph admits to being mired in all the envy and self-pity. He's so honest. At first, he's just glad he didn't say it publicly. Look at 15 and 16. His questions were real, but to have aired his resentments and hurts and doubts as a leader and a worship leader and teacher, it would have caused damage. And verse 16, he says this. Watch this. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I love, I love his, I can't get over how honest the scriptures are. Finding answers when there's trouble. Finding answers when, when a, a beloved one among us has cancer. Paula, finding answers, it isn't easy. And I don't know what's going on with God. It can be a deflection, I understand that. But sometimes, church, it's just honest. 
It's just, I don't know. Someone wrote of this verse, his brain got wearier and his heart got heavier in this verse. Until verse 17, and here we are. He writes this, I entered the sanctuary of God. He never did work it out on his own, but what he did work out was that he was not on his own. Let me say it again. He couldn't work it out on his own, and neither can we. But he did work out something that we can work out. We are not alone. We are not on our own. We have our God in the sanctuary, in the family of Christ. Grace City, here's something that God reveals. If you want clarity in your questions about God and his, his design, if you want to grow in your understanding, then hang around with the people of God. This is what Asaph is realizing. Immerse yourself in the kingdom family. Move toward God when you're in the worst trouble. This is something we're not that good at. You've, you've often heard me say, totally right, that people only hear you when they're moving toward you. And this is about creating an emotional climate where people can actually hear you. Sometimes we put up these walls and expect people to hear us over our anger and frustration and this and that. How do we take the wall down and let people move toward us and move toward them? This is our task with God, too. You see, we, we put walls up with God, and then we expect to hear something, and, and we've cordoned ourselves off. God isn't far away. He hasn't run away. We have put up the walls. And this is saying, move toward God. This is what Asaph discovers. When you're most troubled by God, move toward God. This is a grown-up response. It's, it's really easy to go the other way. It's really easy to say, I'm dropping out. I'm, 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 take, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the faith behind because none of it makes sense. And God says, here I am. Ask your questions. Don't move away. You see this in the verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God. And listen, I know, I know the church family sometimes adds to our problem. Somebody say amen. <laughs> sometimes it does. We're crazy. We're, we're just, and I mean the church with a capital C, not just Grace City, but we are too. Sometimes we add to the problems, but this is where God promises to be among his people, with his people. This is where the answers are most likely to come. This is where we need each other in the presence of Christ even when they're not the answers we hope for. Right, Kristen? And that happens. We're not told exactly how Asaph discovered clarity, and I don't think it's worth guessing about. But, dis but discover he did. I entered the sanctuary of God, and then he, he realizes this. I understood there the wicked's final destiny. And this turns his world upside down. Church, you see what God reveals is the final destiny of the wicked is differentiated from the final destiny of God's people. And so the envy of verse 3 with Asaph is turned to sympathy now, sympathy for the wicked. And this is a surprise again. Look at verses 18 and 19. Surely you place them on slippery ground. His, his foot was slipping, and now he realizes as he gains understanding, Scott, oh my gosh, their feet are constantly slipping. His feet had nearly slipped. They are now slip sliding away. How verse 19, how suddenly are they destroyed? Verse 20, they're like a dream from which you awake. And you know what it's like when you awake from a dream and it's kind of foggy and you can't quite remember it. All of us have had that experience. And that's what he's saying the wicked lives are like. So these people that are oozing wealth and dripping with importance and arrogance turn out to be as empty as a dream. They're very real for a moment and then they're slip, slipping away. 
their final destiny pulls the rug out from under the spin of what life teaches. What God reveals pulls the rug out from under the spin of what life teaches. Grace City, here's a lesson for all of us this morning if we want to understand life with all its trouble. Be confident of God's justice and his just judgment. It's not angry revenge. It's not moody tantrum. It's not selective. It's not biased. It is just justice. I always thought one of the big questions of faith would be, and we ask this often, how can God be good, at, good and loving and then still judge? But the, but, but the more comprehensive question, the bigger question is this, how can God be good and loving and not let justice roll down, not let justice have its day? For Asaph, it's in the full, it is the full view of divine justice that puts an end to his envy and his self pity and results finally in sympathy for those who turn their backs on God. We got to get them turned around. We got to bring them back. He's seen what life teaches. He's seen what God reveals. And now he shows us what understanding, what understanding transforms in us and in our community. Because when, when God, when Asaph finally understands God's justice, it transforms the way he sees the world, interacts with the world and leads and, and finds his place in this. And this is it. What happens when understanding transforms us, starting in verse 28, 21? And this is my final point. Look at verses 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was envious. I was self-pitying. I was a brute beast before you. He was insensitive and, and unteachable. But now as he grows in understanding, this, do you remember Jesus' parable of, of uh, the prodigal son? The younger son gets his inheritance, he runs away, he spends it all in, in loose living, he comes back to his family, to his father with his tail between his leg, and his father is thrilled, he throws him a party, welcome home. The elder brother, which is Asaph here in this sense, all right, this is the parallel, the elder brother is away in the fields, hears the dance music begin, comes in, asks what's going on. And when he hears what's going on in this celebration for the younger brother that's turned around and come back, he throws a tantrum of envy and self-pity. He's in shock. He says things like, all these years, Father, I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed, and you never gave me a party like this. Life just stinks. What's the point? So much Asaph in this elder brother, right? And do you remember what the father answered? Who remembers? My son. You are always with me. Everything I have is always yours. And this story of Jesus in the parable ends before we ever get to know if the older brother was able to wrap his head around it. But the story in Psalm 73 of Asaph is crystal clear. Let's look at what comes next. Asaph not only changes how he thinks and how his heart works, but he changes the way he thinks about life reality to this point. You are always with me, the father says to the, to the elder son. Look at verse 23 in the psalm. I am always with you. This is Asaph's experience. And all of a sudden, as he moves into the sanctuary, as he sees God's future in front of him, as he realizes the destiny that we head for, he's teachable again. He's, he's malleable again in God's sight. He, he rids himself of envy and arrogance and and, 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 it's, and it says here, God, you hold me by your right hand. And I want you to understand the Hebrew here of the right hand. That's the action arm. 
This is not a childish, why don't we hold hands? It's not a passive presence of God. It is an action story. Literally, this, this verse means, you shape my living and my being and my doing. Look at verses 24 to 26. You guide me with your counsel. <clears throat> Afterward, you'll take me to your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Grace City, Grace City, our life in Christ is an action story. It is never a map. It's not something we just plot out. Most often we find our way in Christ, don't we, Alan, by getting lost. Most often we find our way in Christ by asking questions, by having doubts, and honestly moving toward God rather than away from Him. Anything else is called reading a map. This is not a map. And the art, the art of the breakthrough in an action story on your way to understanding is the practice of figuring out how not to live. So, Grace City, I invite you today, don't curse your doubts and your questions. Don't diminish yourself because you have doubt. Don't diminish yourself because you ask repeated questions of your life in Christ. These are the things that move you, can move you toward God if you will choose to do so. Asaph is saying, you steer me through this world's messy complexities. And afterwards, I get to go home with you. There's a spectacular future ahead with you. And so do you see his heart transform into understanding. A minute ago, he's saying, what's the point in following God? And now he's saying, what could possibly be the point in not following God? There's nothing better. I've got nothing else but this movement into the sanctuary. Listen, Grace City, I understand there are times in our lives on this planet when our hearts will fail. I feel that in, in this trouble that surrounds Paula Huggins right now. And I know you feel it with us. But God is our strength, as Paula said. As she related to us, God is our strength. A simple reading of Life Grace City does not solve our questions. Life is exceedingly complex. Somebody say life is complex. You better know it. It would be so easy if only the righteous prosper and the wicked would encounter problems. That's not the formula. Reality is different. Life is full of contradictions and, and paradoxes. And multiple tensions. And in the midst of it all, God's law governs. His law of grace with his self-sustaining power and patience and long-suffering. So, Grace City, if this leaves you puzzled, then come into the sanctuary. Hang out with the people of God. Ask your questions. Express your doubts. Be as honest as Asaph. And see if God doesn't meet you. Because as the psalmist finishes, there's a remarkable transformation. It's not a transformation of the world and all troubles disappear. Sometimes I think that's what we think God will do. That's not how he works. The transformation is how Asaph journeys through this world. How he leaves with us a question we all have to face as we, as we do our journey in Christ. And it's among the most profound questions you can ever ask. How will you travel on this side of heaven? How will you journey? How will you do this? Look at verses 27, 28. He knows you can travel far from God. He knows it, but he says, it's slippery there. That's where you're going to slip slide away. That's where it becomes pointless. That's in verse 27. Those who remain far from God, he says, will perish. But he also knows in verse 28, you can travel near God. Do you see it? Where the footing is so much better. And now he ends 
he's so confident now. His understanding has transformed him so much. He says, I will tell of all your deeds, he says. Can we say that with Asaph? Can you walk out of here today to say, I'm going to tell my world of all his deeds in my life, in my neighborhood, in my work. Now, Asaph only has the outline and the promise. And we're going to sing in a moment about something we have in our history and our reality in Christ that Asaph didn't even have. And we can step into with even more confidence than Asaph. And that's saying something because he's pretty confident right now. So to those of you, to those among us today, to whom these kinds of injustices and troubles and illnesses are deeply personal issues, I want to remind you, I want to tell you of Jesus in his life. I want to tell you of the God who's been there with you, who experienced life as a refugee, who knows what it means to be abandoned by friends, who, who faced the kangaroo court and the torture and the shame and humiliation of a public death. So to those among us whose feet feel like they're slipping, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you feel like your feet are slipping, if you feel like you don't see the hope on the road ahead, I want to remind you of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, of the hope of transformation and the hope of renewal of God's son who faced evil's apparent triumph and still conquered on the cross. And when we look to the cross of Christ church, we may still have lingering questions pertaining to why God allows injustices. Why does God allow illness of the righteous? Why does he allow all this to continue in this world? And please ask your questions. Come to the family of God. Look around this room. Just look around right now. This is family. And it's bigger than this online. It's bigger than this around Baltimore. Come into the family. We may have questions about why God allows injustices. Ask your questions, but, I want, but know this. And Timothy Keller puts it this way. As you ask your questions, know this. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Amen? So here's the big question I want to leave you with this morning. How will you travel when you leave here today? How will you travel in this twisted, distorted world where evil prospers? You can be slip sliding away far from God, traveling bitter, exploiting your own opportunities, or you can travel near to God with solid footing, acting with compassion and humility in light of your final destiny promised by God. And delighted, therefore, to tell of all his deeds to all who are around you. Because of the cross, Grace City. As the worship team comes back, we bring a message of hope to the world. Continuing to work for a more just world right here on earth. As it will be on heaven, in heaven. Let me say that again. Our job. We continue to work for a more just world on earth. As it will be in heaven. So can you tell the world, when you leave here today, can you tell the world that we live in, the reality of the world we live in, the troubled world we live in, surely God is good to his people. And then back it up with this kind of understanding that Asaph brings. Can you back it up with understanding, with growth, with minds, hearts, and souls that are grown up to be more like his son every day? It is a great thing, Grace City, to be able to tell of his deeds with that kind of understanding. So why don't we pray for a moment? 
that we can do just that. Let's bow our heads. And I just want you to be face-to-face with your God. Come into the sanctuary. You're in the midst of a family who loves you, who you can love back. We are all flawed, imperfect human beings. We have questions and we have doubts. And like Asaph, we can say, I came into the sanctuary, and there I saw you. There I found you. Let's pray together. Ask God to